Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for April, May and June 2012, titled Major Lessons from Minor Prophets. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 6 for May 4-10, to 10, Eager to Forgive, Jonah. Sabbath afternoon, May 4. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again today. We come into a familiar story, the story of Jonah, the story of salvation, the story of fear, but the story of your hand being in control and that the fact that we can trust in you. Please help us as we open your word this week to be filled with your Holy Spirit to find your meaning for us. This week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Let's read that again, Jonah 2 verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And our key thought this week is, the book of Jonah reveals, among other things, that God is more willing to forgive others than we often are. The story of Jonah, this rather unusual messenger of God, is one of the best known in the Bible. The prophet had been sent by God to warn Nineveh of coming destruction. He suspected that these non-Hebrew people might repent of their sin and that God would forgive them. Being a true prophet, Jonah knew that God's plan was to save Nineveh, not to destroy it. Maybe that is why he at first tried to run away. Due to forces beyond his control, however, Jonah changed his mind and obeyed God's command. In response to Jonah's preaching, the entire city believed the message and repented in a way in which, unfortunately, Israel and Judah did not. Jonah, meanwhile, had a number of important lessons to learn. The story shows how God patiently was teaching his narrow and stubborn prophet what grace, mercy and forgiveness are all about. Sunday, May 5, The Disobedient Prophet, Jonah, Chapter 1 Not much is known about Jonah or his family background. Second Kings 14.25 tells that he lived in the northern part of Israel and ministered during the 8th century BC. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hepha. The same text reveals that Jonah predicted a territorial expansion of Israel's kingdom. Nineveh was historically one of the three great cities of Assyria, an important country situated by the Tigris River. Because God is the Lord of all nations and all peoples are accountable to him, as you read in Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, he sent his servant Jonah to warn the Ninevites of impending destruction. 
God's command recorded in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 to preach against it also can be translated as preach to it. Assyrian cruelty was notorious. About a century later, the prophet Nahum called Nineveh a bloody city full of lies and robbery. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1. Jonah was sent to deliver God's message to such people. Perhaps it was fear of the hated Assyrians, among other things, that prompted Jonah's attitude. When told by God to make a trip east to Nineveh, the prophet refused and tried to flee west by ship to Tarshish. At first, all things appeared to work well for Jonah, but then the Lord sent a great storm against the ship in order to teach his servant the lesson that no one can hide from God. Jonah ran from God because he did not want to do God's will. Even now, people have many reasons to try to run away from God. Some do it because they do not know him personally. Others reject even the idea of God and his word. While their motives vary, in many cases they do so in order to not feel guilty about the way in which they live. After all, if there is no higher power to answer to, why not do whatever you want? There are even some Christians who avoid God when he calls them to do something that they do not want to do, something that goes against their inherently selfish and sinful nature. Question. Read Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12. The question is, what's the basic message here for us? What kind of feelings does this fundamental truth evoke in you? Or look at it this way. We believe that God not only sees all that we do, but knows even our thoughts. Do we live with that constant realisation, or do we tend to try and blot it out of our minds? Or perhaps, are we just so used to the idea that we just do not pay it much attention? Whatever the reasons... How differently would you act if at all times you were keenly sensitive to the fact that God does know your every thought? Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Monday, May 6, Reluctant Witness 
In Jonah chapter 1, the Lord wants to halt Jonah's escape, so he stores up such a severe storm that it threatens to wreck the ship. The seamen call on their gods for help. Due to the severity of the storm, they feel that someone must have provoked the anger of the gods. They cast lots to decide who will be first to volunteer information about himself that might expose such an offence. For the casting of lots, each individual brings an identifiable stone or wooden marker. The markers are placed in a container that is shaken until one of the markers comes out. The lot falls to Jonah, who now confesses his sins and urges the seaman to throw him into the sea. This story is remarkable because in it the non-Hebrew seamen act positively while Jonah is presented in a negative light. Although they worship many gods, the seamen show a great respect for the Lord to whom they pray. They are also tender-hearted toward the Lord's servant Jonah, which is why they go out of their way to try to row back to the land. Finally, they agree with Jonah that he should be thrown overboard. With this done, the storm stops, and the seamen sacrifice to the Lord and praise him. Question. In verse 9, how does Jonah describe the Lord whom he said he feared? What is significant about the way in which he described the Lord? Also look at Revelation 14.7 and Isaiah 42.5 and Revelation 10 verse 6. Let's go to Jonah chapter 1 verse 9. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And we'll compare that with Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And Isaiah 42 verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. And Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Jonah's confession of faith in God as creator of the sea and land underscores the futility of his attempts to escape from God's presence. The immediate cessation of the storm after the men throw Jonah into the sea shows them that the Lord as creator has control of the sea. Because of this, the seamen worship the Lord all the more. How long this newfound fear and reverence for the creator was to last, we are not told. There is no doubt, however, that they do learn something about him from this experience. So to finish today, we can barely comprehend many of the wonders of the world around us, much less all that is beyond the reach of our senses and even our imagination. How does the Creator speak to you through that which he has made? Tuesday, May 7, Jonah's Psalm When Jonah was thrown into the sea, a big fish swallowed him at God's bidding. 
Jonah must have thought that death indeed was going to be the only way to escape the mission to Nineveh. But the big fish, not called a whale in the book, was an instrument of salvation for the prophet. Unlike Jonah, this creature responded promptly and obediently to God's command. Let's look at it in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And chapter 2 verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God's providence worked in an amazing way here. However, even though some people scoff at the story, Jesus testified about it in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus even used it in reference to his own death and bodily resurrection. Question. Read Jonah chapter 2, often called Jonah's psalm. What is he saying there? What has he learned? What spiritual principles can we take away from this chapter? Beginning at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah's psalm celebrates God's deliverance from the perilous depths of the sea. It is the only poetic part of the book. In it, Jonah recalls his prayer for help as he was sinking deep into the waters and facing certain death. Becoming fully aware of his salvation, he thanked God for it. The hymn indicates that Jonah was familiar with biblical psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Jonah's vow likely consisted of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He was grateful that, though he deserved to die, God had shown him extraordinary mercy. In spite of his disobedience, Jonah still considered himself loyal to God because he had not succumbed to idol worship. Whatever his many character flaws, he was determined to try to be faithful to his calling. So to finish the day... Sometimes it takes a terrible experience to open your heart to the Lord and to realise that He is our only hope, our only salvation. Dwell on an experience you have had where you clearly saw the hand of the Lord working in your own life. 
Why is it so easy to forget the ways in which the Lord has led you, even miraculously, especially when new trials arise? Wednesday, May 8, A Successful Mission After such a miraculous deliverance, when commanded by God the second time to go to preach in Nineveh, Jonah obeyed immediately. In his proclamation in Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 to 4, he used language reminiscent of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But in the original Hebrew, the word for overthrown, which is used in Genesis 19, 21 and 29 and Jonah 3, 4, from Jonah's proclamation can also have the same meaning, turn around or transformed. Let's look at Genesis chapter 21, sorry, chapter 19 and verses 21 and 29. And he said to him, See, I have favoured you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. And verse 29, And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. And we compare that with the transformed or turned around in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And verse 20, and Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And we'll compare that also with 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6. And that reads, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Jonah's preaching of the divine message was not in vain. The greatest achievement of Jonah's prophetic career was the repentance of the city. After the seamen, the Ninevites were the second group of non-Hebrews in the book to turn to God, and all because of interactions with God's flawed messenger. The results were astounding. To humble themselves before God, the people of Nineveh wore sackcloth, put ashes on their heads, and fasted. All of these were external signs of sorrow and repentance. Question. Read Matthew 12, verses 39 to 41, and Second Chronicles 36, 15 to 17. What do these verses teach us about the importance of repentance? 
Matthew 12:39 to 41. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verses 15 to 17. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. The remarkable picture of a strong Assyrian monarch Humbling himself in ashes before God is a sharp rebuke to many of Israel's proud rulers and people, at least those who persistently rejected the prophetic calls to repentance. Because of the book of Jonah's emphasis on God's grace and forgiveness, the Jewish people read it every year at the climactic point of the Day of Atonement, which celebrates God's forgiveness for their sins. Writing in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, October 18, 1906, Ellen White wrote, Our God is a God of compassion. With long sufferance and tender mercy, he deals with the transgressors of his law. And yet, in this our day, when men and women have so many opportunities for becoming familiar with the divine law, as revealed in Holy Writ, the great ruler of the universe cannot behold with any satisfaction the wicked cities where reign violence and crime. If the people of these cities would repent, as did the inhabitants of Nineveh, many more such messages of Jonah's would be given. And so to finish today, read Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. What do these verses reveal about the nature of true repentance? How can we apply these same principles to ourselves? So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat. Or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it.
Thursday, May 9. Forgiven yet unforgiving. Question. Read Jonah chapter 4. What important lessons did Jonah need to learn? How is his own hypocrisy revealed here? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened, when the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself, and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, Is it right for me to be angry, even to death? But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not laboured, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Jonah 4 reveals some startling things about the prophet. He seems to prefer to die rather than to witness about God's grace and forgiveness. Whereas, before Jonah had rejoiced in his deliverance from death, in Jonah chapter 2 and verses 7 to 9, let's have a look at that. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now that Nineveh lives, he prefers to die. In contrast to Jonah, God is pictured in the Bible as someone who takes, as it says in Ezekiel 33.11, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jonah and many of his compatriots rejoiced in God's special mercies to Israel, but wished only his wrath on their enemies. Such hardness of heart is rebuked sternly by the book's message. Question. What are some of the lessons we can learn from Jonah's mistakes? How does prejudice compromise our Christian testimony? It rightly has been observed that Jonah's book is a handbook on how not to be a prophet. Jonah was a prophet of rebellious spirit and mistaken priorities. He could not control his desire for vengeance. He was small-minded and ill-tempered. Instead of rejoicing in the grace that God also showed to the Ninevites, Jonah allowed his selfish and sinful pride to make him resentful. 
Jonah's last word is a wish for death. Jonah 4 verses 8 and 9. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah's last word is a wish for death, while God's last word is an affirmation of his immeasurable grace, an affirmation for life. Jonah's book is left open-ended. Its closing verses confront the readers with one important question that remains unanswered by the author. Did the miraculous change of hearts in Nineveh eventually result in radical change of Jonah's heart? To finish the day, there is a lot in the story of Jonah that is hard to understand, particularly about Jonah himself. Perhaps, though, the clearest lesson is that God's grace and forgiveness extend way beyond ours. How can we learn to be more gracious and forgiving to those who do not deserve it as we see God's doing here with Jonah and with the Ninevites? Friday, May 10. Read the following quotations and discuss how they help us to understand the messages from the book of Jonah more clearly. The first is from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 1003. Whenever they are in need, the children of God have the precious privilege of appealing to him for help. It matters not how unsuitable the place may be, God's ear of mercy is open to their cry. However desolate and dark the place may be, it can be turned into a veritable temple by the praying child of God. And from Prophets and Kings, page 272 and 273, confused, humiliated and unable to understand God's purpose in sparing Nineveh, Jonah nevertheless had fulfilled the commission given him to warn that great city. And though the event predicted did not come to pass, yet the message of warning was nonetheless from God. And it accomplished the purpose God designed it should the glory of his grace was revealed among the heathen. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. The book of Jonah teaches that God is in full control of nature. Imagine that one of your friends has lost a family member because of natural disaster. How would you explain to him or her that God is still in charge despite the presence of natural disasters that devastate parts of our world and take away many human lives? 2. Read the last verse of Jonah. What does it teach us about our responsibility for mission outreach to all corners of the world? 3. In the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, Jesus compared God to an angry king who revoked his forgiveness and threw the once forgiven slave into jail. Does God really revoke his forgiveness? Some Christians argue adamantly that he does not. As a church, what position do we take on this topic and why? Let's read the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and gave, forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And question four. For many people steeped in secularism, the idea of a man being swallowed alive and living inside a big fish is not something to be taken seriously. As we saw earlier, however, Jesus clearly testified to the truthfulness of the story. How does the story of Jonah help us to realise just how narrow and confining an anti-supernaturalistic view of reality really is? And that brings us to Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled, One Single Book. I was a troublemaker. I disobeyed my parents and teachers and questioned every authority. My parents weren't religious, but they had strict standards. But I refused to follow their rules. One day, as my mother travelled by bus to another city, a man stood up and talked about a book he was selling. The book was The Great Controversy. He said that this book had changed thousands of lives. Mother was desperate and sacrificed to buy that book for me. I love reading, and when Mother gave me the book, I went to my room and started reading. The book's ideas were new to me, and some things were hard to understand. But I kept reading. I looked up references to the Bible and realised that this book taught straight from the Bible. The book mentioned the Sabbath. I'd never heard of the Sabbath before but I knew it must be important. I asked a boy at school who worshipped on Sabbath to let me go to church with him. He took me to a charismatic church that worshipped on Sabbath. I joined that church. My parents might have objected, but they saw changes in my life, so they said nothing. 
I kept reading the Bible and asking lots of questions. The church elders didn't answer some of my questions, and one elder accused me of being a Seventh-day Adventist. I didn't know about Seventh-day Adventists, but I started looking for one. I met a Seventh-day Adventist man and peppered him with questions. He answered them all from the Bible. We had some long and heated discussions. I wasn't interested in a church, I just wanted to understand the Bible. I finished high school and took a job teaching elementary school in a small village to save money for college. I discovered that the school was Seventh-day Adventist. I began attending the Seventh-day Adventist church in the village and soon all doubt was gone. I wanted to be baptised. I shudder when I think of where I would be if my mother hadn't given me that book. God used that book to turn my life around. Before I read the book, I was a nuisance to my family. After I discovered the truth in this book, I became so excited about my faith that I became a different kind of nuisance. It's my mission to tell my family and everyone about God's great plan of salvation. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a huge publishing work around the world. Our mission offerings help support the publishing work so that people such as I can experience God's love. Thank you for your offerings. Thank God for his salvation. Oliver Ishan, the author of this story, lives in Ghana in West Africa. This reading has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. It is worth remembering that God is always faithful.